Um, before um, we dive into the sermon, I just wanted to uh, talk about, let's call this our fireside chat. Um, I'm a pretty optimistic guy. I tend to look at the bright side of things, like the future of the church. I think the church future is very bright. Yesterday, Saturday, we had what we call a DSE. It's a discipleship experience, giving people a taste of discipleship here at Grace. We've got 17 different groups, not counting our children's youth, that are meeting nine real-life discipleship groups. Um, they're happening in mornings and evenings, Starbucks, people's homes here on this campus. They're happening everywhere. But our primary motivation is to give every person here a seat at the table. We want to invite you to come and uh, sit with us because <clears throat> we want everybody to be in a small group. Uh, we have these groups that are forming as well as others that will be rolling out in October and January because we know that when somebody encounters Jesus, they hear his call to follow him, right? And then there's this transformation of a person's life. They begin to change. And then what happens is they begin to engage in the mission with Jesus. So our great desire for you is to follow Jesus, to have a life being transformed by him, and to engage in ministry. See, when we step into obedience, there's always a little bit of hesitation, reservation, but when we do it, there is great joy. We were chosen by God, Peter said, according to the foreknowledge of God, by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood unto obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, then you will obey me. So I don't really want something from you. I want something for you. I want you to experience the fullness of the life of God through what I call faith obedience. We have to learn together how to trust the Lord because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So while I'm really encouraged about some of these movements I'm talking about in the church's life, I am concerned about our cash flow. The past two weeks have been 18,000 and 14,000 respectively. So our paradigm here is to be honest and open. And so I'm telling you like it is, right? This is reality. This is reality from where I sit. Um, we're sort of starting the season like the Redskins, kind of a bad beginning, but we're hoping to kind of, you know, right the ship here. So many of you don't know what's like our process, so I thought I'd walk you through what we do as a process. So in the spring, we sit down and we sit with our ministry leaders, our staff, people like Aaron, our children's director, Eric, our youth pastor, and ask prayerfully, you know, what would God have us to do? What is God calling us to do? Then we put together something we call a ministry plan that includes a budget, and we project on the coming year what resources we'll need to get it done. So this year, we projected about $22,000 per week. So if you do the math, we're a little short, right? So this conversation really isn't about money. This conversation is really about our heart because God doesn't really want our money. He really wants our heart. The church is not primarily an organization that you join. The church is a family you belong to. We are brothers and sisters in this together, right? So the vision of our church is pretty simple. We want to see people far from God find God. Lost people get saved. We call this pre-conversion discipleship, to build a relationship 
with a person, first of all, by earning the right to speak into their life, then sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. When they come into the kingdom, we want them to learn to connect with God and others. We want to teach them how to go to the war room. And if you haven't seen the movie, The War Room, you need to see it. And if you want to meet the person in our church who embodies the war room, I'll introduce you to Elaine Henderson. She is the war room. She is a warrior for God in prayer. We'll teach you how to pray. We'll teach you how to pray to our Father. We'll teach you how to engage. And then we'll teach you how to connect in community with each other, being honest and open, learning to apply the scriptures to your life. Then we'll teach you how to uh, engage in, in mission, in ministry. We'll get to the point where we can share our talents and serve one another and serve God and then reproduce other disciples. So here's the truth. You can't achieve vision without provision. God entrusts his resources to us to be about his business. So as we have this conversation, let me just pray. Can I? Father, you're a good God. You've always provided for us. We want to be sensitive, God, to what you're saying to us. Our ears really are open, and our hearts are open to how you would lead us. God, would you guide your people? Would you enable us, Lord, to be a generous people, to learn what it means to give as we've been given unto, to learn to be sacrificial? Would you help us, Lord, to step into obedience? Because we know this finds pleasure in your sight. We want to offer to you, God, a gift that matters because you matter to us. God, speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 9. Let's review just a little bit from the last couple of weeks of what it means to live and love like Jesus. Asking the question, how do I live and love like Jesus? First thing I want to say is that we need to learn to be attentive, paying attention to the people around us, right? Jesus was attentive. Jesus saw a tragedy in the city of Nain. He saw a woman there who was a widow who had lost her only son. Jesus was paying attention. The Spirit, if we are paying attention to the promptings of the Spirit, staying in communion with our Father, listening to His voice, we will step into the Father's timing. The so the first thing is attentiveness. A good question to ask yourself is, what does love require of me in this situation? Love will always take us into attentiveness. Secondly, when we become attentive, we will develop compassion. When Jesus saw the widow, when the Samaritans saw the wounded man, they felt something in their heart. You'll know your heart is beginning to get healthy when there's a movement of your heart when you see somebody and you move in their direction. Jesus, when he saw the woman, he felt compassion for her, perhaps from a deep place in his own heart of having lost. He empathized with her loss. The Samaritan saw the man lying beside the road, and he felt compassion for him. And third, Jesus sees people, feels compassion, and then does what he can to help within boundaries. The good Samaritan exercised really good boundaries when he got off of his donkey, pouring wine and oil into the wound, bandaging up, transporting to a safe place, taking care of the man, but 
also realizing he couldn't be there forever, he entrusted his care to the innkeeper. Okay, John chapter 9, here we go. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. The disciples asked him, Lord, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no man can work. But while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said that, having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said to him, wash in the pool of Siloam. The word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Jesus saw a man blind from his birth. Here was a man who had never seen. His condition was that he was blind. If we close our eyes, we can experience his world. Now, I invite you just for a moment to close your eyes, not to fall asleep, but to experience his world. It's hard when we close our eyes trying to take a shower or when we close our eyes trying to dress in the morning in the dark. But this man was living in absolute darkness. But we can open our eyes again and we can see. But for him, he couldn't open his eyes. Since the day of his birth, he was born blind. He could not conceive of yellow and red and green. He had never seen a painting in the beautiful colors on the, paint, on the canvas. He had never seen his mother's face. He had never done work with his father accomplishing something, seeing what he had done. He had never seen the dawn, the darkness being dissipated. He had never seen the green of the grass or the blue of the sky or the blue of the ocean. He didn't have braille books to read. He didn't most likely have a seeing eye dog. He had to rely upon people to guide him through the city or perhaps a cane. His life was in the darkness. The man and his story were very familiar to the disciples. Because the blind man couldn't work, he was a beggar. And the beggars were at the bottom of the social ladder. They didn't have a job. They most likely didn't get married. They spent their day begging. Jesus saw the man blind from birth. He took a good look at the man. He had a contemplative gaze. He became attentive to his true condition. You see, Jesus saw the man, and he knew how alone and lonely the man felt. There's a part of suffering that we don't often talk about, which is isolation. That a person who's in affliction often feels very isolated, very cut off. To some degree, this man was out of circulation because he had to beg to live. Many find themselves in hospital beds, convalescent homes, other places feeling very lonely. You may have come this morning feeling very lonely in your life. 
This aloneness can feel like a prison, as if there is nobody to talk to, as if you cannot get out, as if you feel trapped. I can speak from personal experience to convalescing and feeling that great feeling of loneliness, as if I would never, ever get better. Jesus knew how helpless this man felt to improve his condition. The darkness had just surrounded him and settled in on him. He didn't believe that he ever would get well. He didn't believe that he'd ever get better. He didn't believe that there was much of him to offer to life. He perhaps didn't feel as if he had very much value or worth. And Jesus knew how much shame and embarrassment he felt. Through no fault of his own, he came into the world blind. When he was a child, he didn't go to school. When he was a boy, he didn't have other boys to play with. Now he was a man, he didn't have work. This blindness, in the physical sense, describes all mankind's blindness in the spiritual sense. Jesus' disciples, looking at him, did not feel compassion for the man. They felt judgment for him. And he was an answer to a theological question that they were asking. So they asked in verse 2 of the story, Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They did not see him as a man needing mercy. They saw him as a theological question to be answered. Is this man being punished for something he did inside his mother's womb? Or is he being punished for something his parents did? Now, haven't we all asked that question? What have I done to deserve this? What have I done to deserve this? A trial happens and we wonder, what have I done to deserve this, right? Something happens to our children, our grandchildren. We say, what have I done to deserve this? Many believe now in America in something called karma, which is we suffer in this life for things we've done in a previous life. In other words, we've done things in a previous life and now we're suffering for them in this life. So I'm going to take a great risk now and tell you a joke, a reincarnation joke, okay? A little break from the sermon. So there was this famous guy and he died and his wife got all into this, like calling up the dead. So she believes she's contacted her husband and, she's, and he, she says, how is it for you? And he says, the sky is blue and the grass is green, the hills are just everywhere. She said, oh, you must be in heaven. He said, no, I'm a cow living down in Texas. <laughs> now, nowhere in the Bible does it teach reincarnation. Reincarnation is a Hindu, Buddhist concept, that if a person lives a life, in the next life they'll be rewarded or punished for it. The Bible teaches us that we have one life to live here upon this earth with an opportunity to come to know God or not. The rabbis taught it was possible for a child to sin before the child was born. They pointed to the example of Esau and Jacob wrestling inside their mother's womb. 
So they were wondering, the disciples were wondering, what did this man do inside his mother's womb to deserve punishment? The womb is to be a protected place, a safe place to be, right? Not a place to be punished. Here was a child in development. Somehow he is coming into the world blind through no fault of his own. On the other hand, the disciples thought, if the child didn't do something, maybe his parents did something, like get ahead of their wedding vows, and now this child is suffering for their sin. I just want to say that the enemy is very good at sowing accusatory thoughts into our minds, firing poisonous arrows at our hearts. So let me explain something to you about God. Our God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Aren't you glad? He does not repay us according to our iniquities. God feels no need to get even with us because on the cross, Jesus paid for our sins. There is no condemnation in our God. And some of you here have believed the lies of the enemy. He has convinced you that God has turned against you, that in your situation, God is punishing you. Could it be that God wants to do a work in the midst of your suffering to show you how great a God he is? Now take very careful note of what Jesus says in verse 3. Jesus doesn't say that the blind man isn't a sinner. He doesn't assert that the parents haven't sinned. He is saying, however, there is no correlation between the man being blind and his sin or his parents' sin. There are mysteries in this life that we are not given to know. There are conditions we cannot figure out. God's ways are higher than our ways. So when we can't understand, we have to put our faith in him who understands all things completely. Jesus here rejects the disciples' line of reasoning, saying that suffering isn't always due to sin. This man's blindness is not connected to his parents' sin. But this happened so that God's work could be manifested in his life. Whoa. That's at least an amen, don't you think? God's, God's going to be gloried, glorified. God's going to get glory through a miracle he's going to do in this man's life. God's going to overrule the suffering in his life by manifesting his work and his glory in his life. And Jesus said, as long as it's called day, we've got to do the work of him who sent me. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of whom who sent me. Now, never in the Old Testament do we have any person who was born blind whose eyes were open. It's only when the Messiah came, the prophecy in Isaiah was that he would open the eyes of the blind. And now Messiah is on the scene, and there's a blind man. So what is Messiah going to do? He's going to do that which Messiah does, which is to open the eyes of the blind. Jesus said that while I am in the world, I am the light of this world. 
though we don't always realize it, and though we aren't aware of it, we are living in a time of great spiritual darkness. There is darkness all around us. I liken the darkness of our time to the darkness of a theater. We come into the theater, the lights are on, we settle into our seat, and we eat our popcorn, don't we? In China, they eat cherry tomatoes. In America, we eat popcorn. We settle into our seats, we dig into our popcorn, and then the lights begin to fade. Soon the theater will be in absolute darkness apart from the screen. The exit signs we couldn't see before, now we begin to see. We get to be comfortable in the darkness, but when the lights come on, we get startled. Jesus is the light of the world. He came into a world full of darkness, physical darkness, spiritual darkness, to give light, to open eyes that were blind. Here was a man who felt so alone. He felt such shame. He felt such embarrassment. He felt so trapped. And then Jesus is going to turn the lights on in his life. I prayed about, what is it, Lord, that you want me to say to our people about the spiritual darkness of our time? And what God brought to my mind was that of Planned Parenthood and the abortion, which is a moral evil in our day. There is business executives within Planned Parenthood that have devised a very clever, deceitful strategy to encourage this generation into sexual promiscuity, encourage them to become sexually active when they're ready, and then to distribute things like condoms and birth control pills. And when they fail, what happens next is you have a right to an abortion. Abortion can happen without parental consent. And so there are abortions in our land. And they have received now federal and state funding. It's very easy to get an abortion in America. And then like... And then the body parts of these precious little children become distributed. On Friday of this week, the House of Representatives voted to defund Planned Parenthood. But whether or not abortion ever becomes illegal in this land, God is going to raise up women and men from this church to be a friend to that person facing an unwanted pregnancy. No more abortions in the church. We can't go back and do what's been done. We can't go back and relive our own history. We can receive God's forgiveness, His mercy. We can be a vessel set apart for God. 65% of the abortions in America are happening to women who are in the church, who have been the church in the last month. 65%. If only in the church there was an alternative to this moral evil, if a woman facing this situation could find a friend in the church and said, I will be your friend to carry you to the prenatal appointment, 
I will help you. If you need a place to stay, you can stay in my house. I'm going to support you and love you through the situation you're going through. Church, it is time to be the light of the world. It is time to step up and be the light. There is darkness all around you. There are people living in darkness. A friend of mine, he pastors a church in Baghdad. It's called Jesus is the Light of the World Church. Somebody asked him, he said, why do they call your church Jesus is the Light of the World? And he said, because Jesus is the light of the world. <laughs> He's not very complex. You know, when you're in the dark, what you need is some light. In the very beginning, there was darkness, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. If you follow me around sometime, and we get to know each other, you'll know that I'm always turning on lights. There's Pastor R. It must be where he's been because there's lights on. I don't really like darkness at all. I don't like dark novels. I don't like dark movies. I don't really like darkness. I like light. The famous poet Robert Louis Stevenson, he was, it was in his home. And back in that day, they would take torches and light the street lights. So the streets that were formerly dark became lit. And he asked his mother, he said, Mom, what are those guys doing with the torches? And she said, Honey, they're punching light into the darkness. They're punching light into the darkness. The darkness that is all around you. Jesus said, You are the light of this world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Neither we put a cover upon a lamp. It gives light to all those in the house. So let your light so shine before men that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When our kids were little, we used to sing this song. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Then we sing, shine all over Middletown. I'm going to let it shine. Shine all over Walkersville. I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to take this light, the light of the world, and let him shine. I'm going to punch some holes in the darkness. I'm going to be part of a generation that doesn't succumb to strategies like Planned Parenthood. I'm going to be set apart for God. Whatever happens, we're not going to have an abortion. We're going to learn things like self-control, self-restraint. We're going to learn like respecting each other. We're going to put the brakes on. But if something happens, we're not going to have an abortion. That's not happening. You see, the darkness speaks to the life without Christ. The light speaks to a person who's following after the person of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the miracle. Verses 6. Having said this, I am the light of the world, right? Still tracking. He then spat on the ground. Now, I love the fact that Jesus spat because this is a man's miracle. Jesus had a good spit. It's in the Bible. Read it for yourself. And he took the common elements, 
the clay of the earth, and he mixed it together into mud, and he put it onto the man's eyes. He anointed his eyes, and the one who was in darkness went down to the pool, and he began to see. He moved from being physically blind to physically seeing. (laughs) And he went home to his family, and he said, Mom, Dad, I can see. Now, this is a living parable, Jesus is teaching, because the man's going to face trouble and affliction and persecution. He's going to have Pharisees to deal with. So this is what happens, verses 8 and following. The neighbors said, you know, hey, what happened to you? Is this the guy used to beg? It only looks like him. He said, no, I'm the man. They said, what happened? He said, this man called Jesus. He uh, anointed my eyes, and he sent me down the pool, and now I see. The first part of his journey was he identified Jesus as a man. This man called Jesus. But this happened on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had a bunch of rules, including you couldn't work on a Sabbath. You couldn't heal on a Sabbath. So the Pharisee, what happened? The Pharisee said, and he said, the man called Jesus healed me. And they said, this man is a sinner because he heals on the Sabbath. The man said, they said, what do you think of the man? They said, I think he's a prophet. You see, a prophet is someone who comes in power and speaks the word of God. I think he's a prophet. And then they brought him a second time before the Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, I know this man's a sinner because he heals on the Sabbath. And the man said, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not, but this much I know. I was blind, but now I see. Okay. And the Pharisees gave him a hard time. And they began to say to him, how dare you lecture us? You were steeped in sin. And Jesus comes to him and says, in verse 35, he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus began to manifest himself to this man, reveal himself, and he said, Who is he? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. The man who was physically blind now He was also spiritually blind. Now he's received his physical sight and also his spiritual sight. You see, God was up to a work in his life, opening his eyes. So let's review the story and see what we learn from it. The first thing we see in the story is that Jesus shows his disciples their blind spots. He helps them to see the situation and know his true identity. You see, the truth is, and this is something you can work out in community, that we all have blind spots. We all have blindness. We all don't see. And so what Jesus does to us is he opens our eyes to see like we hadn't seen before. We begin to see our own blindness, our own blind spots. So I ask you, what are some of the blind spots in your life? Where do you deal with blind spots? 
when I was teaching my kids to drive, one of the things I told them was, watch out for the blind spots. When you're passing on the highway, a car or a truck, you may, they may be in your, rear, in your side view mirror, but they may be in your blind spot. So getting ready to pass somebody, you have to look in your side view mirror to see if that truck or car is in your blind spot. Because that upcoming vehicle that would bring disaster on you may be in your blind spot. Blind spots are things that are seen by others, maybe not seen by me. Your blind spot may be how you come across. You may want to be helpful, but your blind spot is you come across harshly. It's hard to take you in. Sorry to tell you this, but it's hard to take you in because you don't see yourself as you are. You don't read your emails. You don't hear your tone. Your tone can be kind of harsh. It's, it's a blind spot. So a good question to ask somebody is, how do I come across? Your blind spot may be compulsivity, right? You may be a very driven person, you know, checking your texts, your texts, your emails, you know, 25 times a day, preparing for something, you know, more than you need to prepare for it, exercising, you know, more than you need to exercise, eating more than your body requires. I mean, this all may be part of a blind spot you're living in. Maybe your blind spot is that you avoid conflicts, right? You don't, you don't enter in when there's a, a difference. You kind of believe that things will go away on their own. To you, it's a blind spot because you didn't grow up dealing with matters, resolving matters. You kind of let them be. There's like this big old elephant in the room, and no one ever talks about the elephant. So what I'm trying to say is that Jesus, Jesus realizes the disciples have a blind spot. They're believing something that isn't true. So what Jesus does, first of all, is he deals with their blind spot. And then he takes this guy who's blind, and he begins to open his eyes. And over time, this will happen to you. God will begin to reveal himself to you. You'll see his humanity. You'll see he's a prophet. He speaks truth into your life. But his truest identity is he is the light of the world. And he wants to open our eyes up so we're no longer blind, that we begin to see. We begin to see ourselves as he sees us. And he sees us as beautiful and valuable. He sees us as precious, a treasure. You see, this parable is about the potter being God and us being the clay. And God forms us and fashions us and shapes us. And here he's breathing life into the clay, giving sight to the blind man. So I ask you, how is God at work in your life? How is the work of God currently being displayed in your life? How is Jesus Christ changing you? And lastly, what, what, what must we do to partner with God, to be about the works of God? Let me tell you a quick story. I went over to India a few years ago, and I worked with a group from Orissa. And Orissa does not have any medical doctors. It basically is a few hundred miles from Chennai, and there's no doctors there. So I worked with these pastors and evangelists and missionaries in Orissa. Shortly after I was there, there came persecution to this 
group of new believers. There's about 500 churches there, and they went under persecution. Um, the extreme Hindus began to pursue the people of Orissa, and they fled for their lives into the bush, away from their homes. Many of their homes were burned. Their churches were burned. So they suffered persecution just like this guy suffered persecution. It was made known, and one of the things I should tell you also is, the people of Orissa loved to dance. They loved a worship dance. So before I would teach them, we would always dance together. Can you imagine me dancing with these guys? So we would dance these worship dances together. So we would dance together, and I'd teach them, and we'd finish by dancing together. So when their condition became known to some eye doctors, some eye doctors went over to Orissa with their equipment, their technicians, and they did all kinds of surgeries for macular degeneration, for uh, cataracts. And the people in Orissa, who formerly were blinded, now began to see. So what do you think they did in Orissa when they began to see? Some of these doctors were not even believers. Some were unbelievers, some were Jewish, some were Christian that had gone over to Orissa. They joined hands together and they began to dance because the people that were blinded now began to see. Do you understand that Jesus is the light of the world? That he has come into a dark world to give us light, to shine darkness to shine light into our places of darkness. And you may be sitting this morning in a place of darkness. Remember, I don't really like darkness. I want to turn some light on for you, okay? But what you need to do in that dark place is you need to open up a window. You need to let a little light into that dark place. You've been sitting in isolation, but now you need to get connected you need to open up a window. You need a little, little light into that dark room. You need to listen to a little praise music, right? You need to open up the scriptures and let God begin to speak to you. You need to go to the war room and do a little praying, right? Offering up that situation, surrendering to God. You need to get into community where you're doing life with some other people. You need to let some light into that darkness of your life. Because in a dark room, it's pretty dark. Jesus is the light of the world. Will you let that light into your heart? Pray with me. Father, here we are on a Sunday morning. We're working our way through the Gospels. And we're understanding the amazing heart of Jesus Christ that he sees people where, exactly where they are. He feels compassion for them. And then he does what he does. And you begin to shine light. You begin to show us our blind spots. You show us our false beliefs. You show us the strategies of the enemy to divide us. You... Show us the strategy of the enemy to bring accusatory thoughts, to, shut, to fire fiery arrows at our heart, making us disheartened, disillusioned. So God, in your presence, we ask you, Lord, to 
shine light upon us. Shine light upon this dark world. We pray, Lord, for us to step into obedience. For us to open that window and let the light shine in. The brokenness of our past to heal. The places that are wounded to mend and become whole. For us to shine like a light this week, wherever we are. Because Jesus, you are the light of the world. And you've invited us to reflect your light into the darkness of this planet. God, may your light shine in our homes. Your light shine in our neighborhoods. May your light shine in our community. May your light shine upon our nation. And we pray, Lord, for a spiritual revival in America. You've said if your people who call by your name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then you'll hear from heaven, forgive our sins and heal our land. We pray, Lord, for this dreaded condition known as abortion and Planned Parenthood to be defunded. We pray for you to raise up from this generation strong, capable, bold people, men and women, who will speak forth your truth. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to walk in the light as you are in the light. We're going to manifest light to this generation. God, help us. We need your help. We cannot do this by ourselves. Jesus, be the light of the world and shine your light through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this little light, I'm going to let it shine. God bless you.